find yourself shaking your fist at clouds? Do you secretly wish you could cause a county-wide power outage? Have you ever caught yourself yelling, stupid moon? Have you ever left your warm bed and stood outside in near freezing temperatures at two in the morning and loved it? Have you ever answered the question, why aren't you getting enough sleep with it's a new moon? If you have ever said, thought, or done any of these things, then this podcast is for you. I'm Aaron King, and welcome to the Astrophotog Podcast. Hey guys, it's episode three. Episode three today. And episode two, I know that you probably are noticing it right now that it's existing, and these both have come out at the same time, and I just destroyed the Astro Primer just because, you know, it was way late. You already know what's going on, or you missed it. And so I'm sorry for the delay of the podcast. As Robert Underwood told me the first release of the podcast, of Astrophotog Podcast, episode one, he said, you could probably get away with doing this every other week or every two or three weeks, just so you don't burn yourself out. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to do it every week. But I did promise to him that it would be a priority number two versus Photog Adventures content, and unfortunately, every week since I've made that statement, I have had Photog Adventures content that has taken up all my time, and so like I told him, priority will be Photog Adventures, I'll come back to Astro Photog, so while I already had episode two recorded, I didn't have it edited, and I'm going to release it still because I think the content there is interesting, especially the part with Eric Benedetti where we had a 10-minute segment with him, so... Astrophotog will come out as frequently as I can make it. I can't promise it'll be every week, I guess, now, but I am planning on it, and I might even be in a position now to make that happen just because of where things have gone with my work. I talked to my boss, and I said, hey, look, I need to have a day where I could focus on content. How could I possibly take a day off during the week, maybe work my 40 hours from Monday through Thursday, and then have Friday off every week so I always know that's my day to release content. And, you know, crazy enough, my boss was on board with that. She thought, you know what, you know, having you guaranteed here for those other four days will be worth it. And so now we've got a compromise that's going to start tomorrow morning. I'm going to talk to them, plan out the exact day. And I'm going to have one day a week that I can dedicate to Photog Adventures and Astrophotog content. So I think I'm going to be able to deliver all these things that I've been hoping to deliver and having that time for it. Oh, man, I can't wait. (sighs) It's only next week that it's starting, so I guess I don't have to wait that long, but I'm excited for it because the last few weeks have been devastating and discouraging as I haven't been able to release. But this podcast is not about my schedule and how discouraged I am about not being able to release content, and it is more about astrophotography. Here's a feature I've been wanting to do for Photog Adventures for a while, actually since the very beginning, and when Brendan and I talked about the format of our show and how we would handle it, this one ended up being as a lower priority, and so it got pushed off to the side, and we focused on the format that we decided on, and it has been received really well, and so we haven't had any need to change from that. And so now here's my opportunity to try it out, try it on you guys, and see if you guys enjoy it, and see if I enjoy doing it. It might not be something that's very practical. It also might be something that sounds the same every time I do it. And so let me just introduce you to it. So what I wanted to do was do a pre-trip discussion about, okay, why are we going here? What's the plan? And what's the expectation? What kind of pictures are you going to get using this plan? 
and then come back from the trip and talk about, okay, this is how it actually went. Here's the things that I thought were going to be true that completely were wrong. I guessed wrong. I saw this on Google Earth. For instance, I could have talked about the Bryce Canyon trip, how I saw, okay, we'll get there around 7, 8 o'clock at night because right here in this parking lot at Inspiration Point, there's a pathway right down into the canyon that's very easy. Looking on Google Earth and Google Maps, the pathway looked very clear, very easy to traverse, and quite an obvious slant right down into it. And we can work our way into Bryce Canyon and capture some awesome Bryce Canyon hoodoos in the view with the Perseid meteor shower. Well, what actually happened is that I got there and found out that that nice slanted hill was a complete drop-off. And everything that it showed me on Google Earth that was topographical and slanted up, it was only talking about the part where it was slanted it kind of didn't reveal that sheer cliff so once we got to inspiration point and it was dark outside the moon was starting to set and we could see that not only was this a cliff and that we had no chance of getting down it we had the moon setting behind us so low that most of Bryce Canyon was entirely in shadow. So I would have talked about how my plan was this, go here. We had all this window of opportunity to reality where when you get there, that's not the way to go down. You have to go to Sunset Point or other locations to hike down into Bryce Canyon. And, well, the moon's going to be so low at this point that you're going to miss it unless you're there from you know 7 o'clock to 8.30 and had I got that in my plan, had I had that set up originally, we wouldn't have missed the opportunity to have the moon light up all Bryce Canyon for our foreground element of the Perseid meteor shower. So those of you who actually saw the Bryce Canyon video, you saw that we just took a picture of a tree, and I took a picture of white because I had an exposure. I mean, I've mentioned that so many times now. I still have not recovered from the depression of that mess up with my intervalometer. Yikes, if you don't know the story, you haven't caught on to that yet, listen to the Bryce Canyon podcast or even Eric Benedetti's podcast. I bring up the story again there. Okay, so this trip, where are we going? We're going to the House on Fire ruins, and I'm going to talk about why there, what's the plan, what's the expectation, and then the next time you hear my voice, it will be after I come back from the House on Fire ruins this weekend. I'll sit down in here in the studio, and I'll talk with you guys about what actually happened, how it went, what worked with my plan, what didn't work with my plan. Then I'll do the gear time tip of the week and end the show. So here we go. Right below Bears Ears is Mule Canyon, and Mule Canyon, this trailhead that you can get on hikes right past these Anasazi ruins. It looks really cool because they have this doorway and a window and above that obvious house looking ruin are very awesome striations in the rock. I don't know if it's only color or if it's actual texture. I haven't been there so I'm really curious if when I'm there I can see how it's actually contours in the rock and certain light and shadow causes them to pop off the sky pop off the rock and you can really see them or if it's just the color in the rock but the way that it waves off of the top of the building and it's such a red orangish rock with obvious orange highlights and yellow highlights and orange shadow points that it looks like it's flames coming off the top of this ruin this house and so people call it the flaming house ruin or the house on fire ruin and this thing looks awesome I'm excited to capture just a regular shot with cool light on it and just see how it looks when it's glowing and looks like a glowing burning house 
but I'm really stoked about getting this panorama. So, okay, why? Why do we want to go out to the House on Fire ruins? Well, because Jeff Peterson told us about it. I'm not sure if he pronounces it Pedersen or Peterson, but Jeff told us about it. He says, I'm going out here later this year. Who wants to join me? Kathy is coming down from Chicago. She needed a place that she can meet up with us and do some astrophotography. And I figured since this location, House on Fire ruins, is kind of a midpoint between Hanksville, Blanding, you got Natural Bridges now, National Monument close by, you got Moab, Arches, Canyonlands, all these places that she definitely wanted to see. And then going on to Zion, you can go up that pathway too. I figured this road was a nice, easy, right off the road, one mile hike in location that she could join us and have cool places for her to go for the rest of her trip. And so she wouldn't have to be off of a path that she wanted to be on too much, and it would be very convenient for her. Jeff already wanted to go. I wanted to go. Brendan wanted to go. Kathy wanted anywhere that we could go with dark skies, and this is right in one of the darkest sky areas we have. Utah just barely got Antelope Island added to the list of the International Dark Sky Park. And so the International Dark, International Dark Sky Association has awarded us nine parks now in Utah. Utah is now the, it is the one region state location that has the most International Dark Sky Parks in it. And so if you wanted to go to the place that has the most opportunity for dark sky photography, nighttime photography, stargazing, telescope use, Oh man, if you're not going to go to the mountains of Chile and Santiago or Mauna Kea up there in Hawaii, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I bet Rusty Parkers could tell me. If you go over there to those locations for Great Telescope, I get it, they're the best. But the area with the most dark sky locations is officially recognized as Utah. So man, what a great place for me to really catch the astrophotography bug because I am just hours away from nine locations, minutes away from some just minutes away from some that are International Dark Sky designations, so that is awesome. So anyway, Natural Bridges National Monument is one of the International Dark Sky Parks. It's right there within like 30 minutes of this location. So you can imagine that this sky is crazy dark, crazy awesome. If we have clear skies, this could be Kathy's best place to capture the Milky Way. While she has tons of opportunities everywhere else, this will be her most crisp, dark, clear sky that she can find. Of all the places she might go, she might go to several just like it. And so, it was a good place to meet up with her. We wanted to get there, wanted to get this shot, and it's a challenge. And so I am trying to get a house on fire shot on the left, a large panorama that's spreading out, and you can see the Milky Way straight ahead, and maybe even getting the arch to go up and over the house on fire ruin. I don't know how exactly it will go. So the plan is to set up that panorama shot, put the house on fire ruin on the left. We are gonna do light painting. Jeff's bringing his lights, I'm bringing my light. I have my high CRI LED bulb that I can flash paint, but I don't plan on doing any light painting where I'm actually having to waggle my arm and paint the surface. I'm only planning on having stationary low level lighting going on using Jeff's and mine together. In concert with Jeff's stuff and mine, we're gonna light the area. And that stuff's going to glow red rock. It's going to be beautiful. The house will have a nice orange light on the inside. It'll glow out. The house on fire flames will just be amazingly glowing, I'm expecting. And then I can have this panorama go out to a dark... Uh, can it's not a canyon. I mean, it is a canyon. It's not sheer high walls. I'm not expecting it to be sheer high walls. But maybe it is. 
And from the pictures I've seen, they haven't seemed that tall. They haven't seemed that in the way. And it seems like because of the fall off of rocks as they piled up slanted hills on each side, it's not that sheer of a cliff. It's not that tall of a canyon. It just seems like a gap, a nice gully that you're in, and you see a creek that runs down it. And so I'm expecting to put the Milky Way right over that gully, right down it, going south-southeast, where I can see the core between 1.30 and 2.30. About 2.30, that core might be over part of the curving canyon, but I'm expecting it to be high enough that it's visible. But maybe it won't be high enough. Maybe it'll be blocked by that, and I'll have to capture the Milky Way during that 1.30 time between 1.30 and 2 a.m., so my plan, set up the panorama, get everything light painted, take that shot in the blue hour, and then wait for the Milky Way. Real quick, let me just say this. I'm expecting us to have clouds the first night. The first night from Friday to Saturday morning, it's going to have clouds, and we're going to have to deal with those clouds, but maybe it's going to be way better Saturday to Sunday. Sometime tomorrow while I'm at work, they will update the predictions for Saturday to Sunday, and I'll be able to see what they're saying. Currently... The prediction for Celeratus Ranch is that Saturday night at 6 o'clock, it's totally clear. Seeing is terrible. Why is seeing terrible? Because it gets a little windy, and the, the, the turbulence in the air with the wind causes problems with seeing. So seeing is terrible, but transparency is good. It's dry. It's not moist. And the cloud cover is great. It's going to be perfectly clear according to the predictions as of 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Saturday at this area. So... Tomorrow morning, sometime around 5 or a.m. or even 10 a.m., I'll be able to check this out and see all those hours leading to midnight and 2, 3, 4 in the morning on Sunday morning and see if that cleared up. If that stays clear from 6 o'clock on, we're golden. We're going to make this happen Saturday to Sunday, and it might just work for that. So those are my expectations. Those are our plans, and that's why we're going there. House of Fire Ruins, listener adventure. I'm excited for this. At worst, I'll have my wide-angle shot taking some cool shots of the House on Fire Ruins during blue hour. We might even have enough clouds that we enjoy a sunset out there. So I'm excited. I am, dare I say, stoked to get out there, leave work, take off, four or five-hour drive for me and Brendan and we're going to get down there. So I'm going to end the podcast right here. For me, at this point on the 28th of April, it is now the morning of the 28th, so it's Friday already. I need to get to bed, and when I come back, I'll tell you guys how awesome it was or how skunked we got. Who knows? We'll see. Love this. Talk to you guys soon. And I'm back. So I've been back now for two weekends. It's Thursday right now, and it was two Fridays ago that I was out there at House on Fire Ruins and Natural Bridges National Monument. So what I said for expectations was that there'd be cloudiness with some openings and probably a better night Saturday through Sunday than there would be Friday to Saturday. So how did it actually go? How did our trip go with Jeff and Kathy? We ended up not having anyone else join us and Brendan couldn't join us. So the first night, Friday night, I ended up getting there so late. I got there at midnight, but it didn't matter whatsoever because we had clouds, so many clouds. It cleared up a little bit. We heard that it did, and when I arrived around 12, it was still some sight that I could see over Blanding. I could tell that there were some stars, but it was partly cloudy, pretty in and out, blocking the Milky Way most likely and clouds on the horizon, so we weren't going to worry about that night. Kathy and Jeff had been out the night before. It was so cold. These guys were really, really not interested in camping out, getting out in the 
freezing cold temperatures. And so I met them at the hotel in Blanding and decided, okay, well, let's just go for the sunrise, go to House on Fire Ruins in the morning, get some good light there, have some fun scouting the area out, get set up for that night, and we'll do House on Fire Ruins that night. So after our hike to get in there, we had a wonderful morning with beautiful light reflecting off the rock. House on Fire Ruins was looking fantastic. But just like Jeff said, as I look up, we realized that right there where the Milky Way core was going to be, that canyon had just enough of an outcropping that got in the way. When you look up from the House on Fire Ruins, you have a big rock overhang that's over your head. So you already have most of that sky blocked off. But there was a big section of sky. You could very easily see a lot of the Milky Way in that situation, but because of how far south the Milky Way core was going to be, I don't know if we would see any of it, let alone part of the core. So when you look at it, we didn't expect this. In Google Earth, you just, you just can't see it. On the map, you just can't see it. You see that there is this spot in that direction. You're going to see the core golden. But you just don't know precisely how the elevation goes in a situation like this. If you have a mountain and a topographical map, you can tell its elevation. Even using the pin and photo pills, you can move from here to here and see the elevation change. But precisely how much that was going to block the core of the Milky Way throughout the entire night, we didn't know. As it, sh as it pivots on that one point and goes up in the sky higher and higher, there was a chance that we could see it. So standing there at the House on Fire ruins, it just was not going to work. It was most likely going to be a bust. And being out there at that position, waiting until 1 in the morning really to see it, was it going to be worth it? Was it going to be a situation where, oh man, this is a waste of our opportunity. We're here really close to Natural Bridges National Monument. We know we can capture it there. And so all of us decided that we were far more excited to get out there to Natural Bridges National Monument and make sure that we caught the Milky Way. Kathy was excited to capture a Milky Way shot for her first time. She kept getting skunked by clouds. And we, were, we had clouds that whole day Saturday. So I kept looking up and thinking, oh my gosh, okay, I could see this clearing up. We'll be fine. And then an hour later, oh, wow, look at how much it's filled in. And then an hour after that, oh, wow, everything's kind of moved away. So clouds were in and out, in and out. There was no predicting exactly what was going to happen with these clouds. And so we knew what it said. Here's the prediction. It's going to be clear. The prediction at cleardarksky.com is show that it's going to be clear by midnight. It's going to be so clear that hours and hours before midnight, it would be perfectly clear, 0% cloud cover. And hours into the morning, it was going to be 0% cloud cover. So it was predicting a good 12 hours or more of completely perfect sky. That is the best opportunity you have. When you see clear dark sky saying you have 12 plus hours of clear sky, go. Absolutely. Even if you end up with a little bit of of thin cloud that you weren't expecting because just the moisture here rose, the temperature here rose, and look what happened, you're going to have an awesome experience. So we knew that this was the night that we were going to have a great sky, and boy, did we ever. So for those of you who don't know Natural Bridges National Monument, it is, at least at this bridge, the Owachomo Bridge, or Owachomo Bridge, or Owachomo Bridge, I don't know, I have no idea how to pronounce it, but the Owachomo Bridge, the O Bridge, it's one of the last ones. I think it's the last one on the loop. So if you go to Natural Bridges National Monument, you'll see that there's a loop, a one-way loop that gets you to all of the trailheads to hike down in and see all the other bridges. The way the water has cut this canyon is it was going through the Oachomo Bridge for many, many years. And then something changed its direction 
direction, it switched directions, and it cut away from the bridge. And so it continued building a deeper and deeper canyon going through another direction, and the Oachomo Bridge is higher up. The rest of the bridges are all way deep, long hikes, a lot of work to get to and get out of. But the Oachomo Bridge is the most accessible, the most easy to get to, and it's beautiful and huge. It has a large span of this natural bridge that's going across. It is fantastic, and it gives you a big enough gap to see the Milky Way through it as well as see the Milky Way up and over it. So I was really excited to get this shot. Now my expectations were, okay, I want the Milky Way core on the inside of this window that the bridge is making, and then see the rest of the Milky Way trailing up over and intersecting with the top part of the bridge, and then intersecting out of it into the sky. And so that was my expectation. We get there, it's so crazy windy at Natural Bridges National Monument, at least during the two times I've been there, because I went there last weekend too. Brendan and I recorded another video last weekend just down in there. So when we're out there, we're trying to have dinner, and it's miserable a little bit, just too windy. We're having to anchor everything down, hold onto our plates, just the kind of meal that's not relaxing, even though it wasn't cold, not terribly, just a little cold. I doubled up. I put on an extra layer underneath my pants. I put on all the shirts that I brought, my nice textured long john shirt. So I had that plus two long shirts, plus my other shirt on top of that, a hoodie, a jacket. I was in layers as much as I could because I didn't want to die out here all night because I knew we had to wait until midnight about 12:18. the moon was going to set a little bit actually before the moon the moon was going to set just a little bit before midnight but then the Milky Way was really the core was coming above the horizon at 12:18, and so we had many hours to go so the hike down into Natural Bridges National Monument the O Bridge the hike down to the Oachomo Bridge is really a short one. It's 0.2 miles, but you drop about 700, 800 feet or something. So you're looking at a pretty steep incline on the way back up, but they have made it very easy for anyone to go through. I saw people of all ages and health going through here, heavier set, knees in bad shape, people with canes were going down, people who were tiny, frail, they were going down, people who were totally fit were going down. I mean, this is easy trail for everyone. If you can't do any of the bridges at Natural Bridges National Monument, do the Oachomo Bridge because it's just a 0.2 mile hike. You're basically going down a staircase. A lot of the trail is a cut out granite sandstone. I guess it's more sandstone. Sandstone steps that they've cut out and put down there. And so you're walking on slick rock area, then step, 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 step. Slick rock, parts of the rock, kind of really bumpy rock, and then you're on steps, more steps, and all the way down to the bridge do you have this slick rock flat surface step, step, step. So this pretty, pretty easy trail to go down. In fact, I get so tired and sweaty hiking that I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it once and I'm not going to do it multiple times. This was a hike that when I got down to the bottom and I wanted my iPad and I was like, hey, Jeff, uh, you forgot your water bottle. Want me to grab it? He happened to forget a water bottle on that hike and I was willing to go back up and hike it again. Not without my pack, of course. I went completely bareback, nothing, nothing to carry. In fact, it had actually gotten so warm down in without the wind. I didn't realize how warm it was without wind. With the wind, the wind chill was crazy. And so when we were down inside there and the wind wasn't affecting us at all, which I thought was going to be the opposite. I thought in that canyon, the wind would whip at us and have one pathway to go. And we would just be sitting in this flurry of hard wind coming at us the whole time. But no, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, it was calm as ever. And so I stripped down all those layers down to my last layer. And if you saw the video that I posted there that I recorded, um, sorry, the quality sucks. 
It's just dumb. It doesn't let you actually upload to a 720p or higher quality unless you're on Wi-Fi. And I wasn't going to be on Wi-Fi until I got home. So what's the point of doing the video like that if I wait until I get home? It's so cool to do it on the spot or out there in the pockets of, of pockets of cell signal and then just kind of show what's happening as it's happening. But it, if I was going to create a video and I came all the way home, I might as well just record everything with the GoPro and make it a regular photog adventure. And so I was bummed by the quality. Sorry about that. But if you saw that last video where you see me walking up the steps, those are the steps I'm talking about, the nice stepped carved steps that are out there and really smooth rock and you'll see how Oachoma's right there that's me heading back up so I'm heading back up to get the water get my iPad which of course I made a mistake so when my pot when I decided to leave I felt my pocket and I was like okay here's some keys I'm good uh what else do you need? anyone else need anything else like boom and I went upstairs got all the way to the top and I got Jeff's water out Unfortunately, when I was checking for my keys, I felt keys in my pocket but forgot that I had already taken Jeff's keys for his truck, and I was just feeling his keys. So I felt that his keys were in my pocket. I was going up the stairs with only his keys, and I made it all the way there to grab my iPad with three hours to spare, and ugh, I had nothing. On my iPad, I had Doctor Strange recorded. I had episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender, which I think is awesome and all you should too. And I had episodes from The Office, 30 Rock, and a couple other shows off Netflix that I had downloaded. So I had lots of cool things I could have watched and hung out with for those three hours. But no, I forgot my key. And was I going to go up the steps a third time? I almost did. I threatened several times, but Jeff and Kathy were like, ah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We also met Danny. He's from Vancouver. He was there with his girlfriend, fiance, wife. Sorry, I don't know what you were. You guys were down there too, braving the weather, braving the night, wanting to see the Milky Way too. So you guys joined us. So there's a group of us of five now. I was plenty entertained, but man, I sure love having my iPad when I get out to places like this. And I'm just kind of waiting. I have my tripod set and I'm waiting for the next moment. I love popping the iPad out and watching a video, watching a Netflix. Gosh, it's great. It's a brilliant weekend. So anyway, didn't have that. I got just water and I hiked back down. So it's an easy enough hike that I was willing to do it twice. So Natural Bridges National Monument awesome, beautiful place with this white sandstone, white yellow sandstone everywhere with these green juniper trees, really distorted, contorted branches and trunks, just like a bristlecone pine. I was like, I even said at one point, hey, is that bristlecone pine-like tree? And Jeff goes, oh, that's a juniper tree. I'm like, okay, yeah, of course. I could tell that there were juniper berries on the tree, but I was paying only attention to the fact that it was shaped so cool and squirrely like a bristlecone pine. And so I got that only in my head. So thanks for that lesson, Jeff. It's, it's a juniper tree, and they're really cool. They're all over. It's a beautiful color contrast of the nice dark green and the white yellow rock. Oh, it's awesome. So the Oachomo Bridge, here's where it became more challenging, and I didn't plan exactly where to stand using photo pills. I didn't have an idea of where the core would be. I only had the photo pills augmented reality app at that point because I couldn't load that element of my app and see the map and do all that work, which is why tip of the week is not this, but tip right now 
if you're going to go to a location, make sure that you have it saved in your iPad, in your device, on your phone, that you've loaded it up, and even take screenshots of it. Because if you change your position from there, you can kind of guess how it's going to change. I even recommend doing three or four versions of where you want to be, even though you think you want to be in this corner. Try four or five different corners, take screenshots of each. That way you have some idea of how to kind of triangulate where the Milky Way core would be from any of those positions that you decide on on location that you want to change. For instance, you get there and you see that right here where I wanted to stand, yeah, it looked fine at the colorful top-down satellite view, but you realize all that color is actually 16-foot tall trees that are blocking your view of the Milky Way. So now, all right, I got to move right or left to get around these trees, but where is it going to be good if I want that pinnacle of rock to be near the Milky Way core? And you can do that with your with your PhotoPills app and make sure you mark your location and then have four or five different ones so that you can see examples of where else you can go just in case if that color that you're seeing on the map right there turns out to be the dark color of treetops being 16 feet tall instead of just the color of ground covering and grasses and other bushes that you can see over because you don't always know what the terrain is like. You can see pictures of it, but when you put your pin down on that satellite image, you're not sure if those colorful greens are 10 feet, 8 feet, 2 feet tall. Who knows? So we got down there and found the spots that we could see the bridge. Now that's one of the problems we had, or trees that were in the way. We didn't want trees blocking our bridge. We didn't want to do it right off the path either. And so we're thinking, okay, right over here is an option, directly underneath the bridge. We want to see as much of the Milky Way core as possible. And as I'm sitting there and we're looking, I'm thinking, you know, how big the Milky Way core actually is in the sky? This bridge window, the window that the bridge is making is just not going to be big enough. And I'm using the PhotoPills app augmented reality because even without signal, it will update with your GPS and with the orientation of your compass on the inside. And what's the word I'm looking for? A gimbal that's on the inside of your phone. So it has a way of knowing where you are and what to do and how to orient that for you. Almost perfect. It's better when you have signal, but man, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And it helped me see, okay, the Milky Way core is going to be right there and it's going to take up almost the entire window. So we either needed to go really close to the window where we could see the core without having it being abated by a lot of the uh, rock of the bridge, or we needed to go way back and have the rock of the bridge be a feature that's kind of off to the side, and there's the Milky Way core on the horizon. So that was a bit disappointing as I looked in there, as I thought, I really wanted this picture. But when you get there and you find out, okay, this window's not that big, or it's so big that if I got too close, I'm taking a 16 panorama up and down that's extremely distorted just to see the bridge plus the core. And so now you've got all these different things you didn't know, you couldn't anticipate that you find out on location. So that was a major challenge of the Oachomo Bridge. And we decided on a couple ideas. We decided, okay, let's put the core down in here as big as it is. At least we'll see the Milky Way down here coming out of that window and going up. And I'm going to try a panorama or, in, or a time lapse or whatever we can do. So we put our cameras up, tripods, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. We're enjoying conversation, laughing about things, talking about whatever. I don't even remember what we were talking about. And then the time came for the Milky Way. 
I got to tell you, I got so impatient with that moon. I'm like, are you not down yet? It's been an hour. I look up and the moon's so high in the horizon that I'm still thinking it's got another hour and a half. And I just went through an hour. I'm ready for it. Stop now. If you go out for the Milky Way and you're impatient like that, make sure you go out in June through August because right when the sun goes down and astronomical twilight begins, as long as there's no moon, Milky Way is right there ready for you. You don't have to wait until 1 in the morning, 1230 in the morning for it to happen. So here we go. We got the Milky Way rising, and it is bizarre. It's unfamiliar almost. Now, most of the places that I go to see the Milky Way, I'm a little bit in elevation, or I'm in a mountainous area, or I'm in a little flat area in a valley, but I see mountains in the distance. And so there's always something blocking the beginning of the Milky Way right on the horizon. I rarely, if unless I'm out in the salt flats, see the flat part of the Milky Way on the horizon. This area was so dark. There was no light pollution on the horizon. I mean, Natural Bridges National Monument is one of the first international dark sky parks ever designated in the world. And so it's one of the darkest locations you can go in civilization in a dry climate. And we were having a beautiful night of seeing, a beautiful night of transparency. If you guys remember, seeing is turbulence in the air. And whether or not that seeing is good enough to see planets and transparency is the moisture in the air and how transparent the air is. We had a beautiful night of seeing, a beautiful night of transparency. And we had a beautifully clear, if you see my time lapse on Facebook, you can see that there's tiny little clouds that form and dissipate. That's it. Those are way in the distance on the horizon no other clouds. And so all the sky was open to us. Oh, I wish I had my telescope with me and I would have carried it down there because it's not that far and it's not that hard because, oh, that sky was beautiful. We could have seen nebula. We could have seen galaxies and spent all that time waiting for the Milky Way to rise and the moon to go down, seeing cool stuff. So while we're enjoying the many, many, many stars, losing track of where constellations are because there's so many stars camouflaging it now, it was a fantastic night, and now we're seeing the Milky Way coming up on the horizon, and I'm looking with my eyes. Am I seeing it? Yep, there it is. And everyone's like, are we seeing it really? We just All of us weren't sure what we were looking at. It was just a slight difference between the dark here and the dark there, and we saw just a little difference. And I didn't expect it to be so horizontal. So like a flat object on the horizon from right to left, the entire horizon too. I was expecting it to maybe be a little flat some places and arcing up. No, man, when that Milky Way is just barely coming up at this time of the year, it is so horizontal. It's taking up everything. And basically what we're seeing is half of the Milky Way and half of it underneath the horizon. And when it's only half of it like that, it's actually kind of hard to see. Even in a dark sky location like that, it was hard to make out. You weren't sure what you were looking at. It wasn't until the Milky Way other half, the bottom half of that Milky Way collection of stars, when it got above the horizon and it was obvious darker, kind of dark and darker, and we could see how it differed from the rest of the sky. It's like, okay, now it's taking shape. We can see that. We can see what we're looking at. That's the Milky Way. And we were right. The core was huge. It was taking up almost the entire spot. From where we were standing that far back, we were basically seeing some of the Milky Way core, the bright part of the Milky Way, and the rest was getting blocked by the, the crossing top part of the bridge and the side wall of the bridge, and that wasn't as cool. So we moved forward, and we moved up. We tried different locations. I think our favorite, 
as you can see in Jeff Peterson's picture, it was up there on the path. Right there on the path, there's a nice flat ground. We can set up a tripod. I went off to the edge of the path a little bit so I can get a little bit more of the top part of the core. And you get that entire core in there, but it's filling up the gap. The window is completely filled almost wall to wall with the Milky Way core. But you get more of the core, and then it kind of goes away from the core and thins out before it hits the top part of the arch. And that was a cool image. That arc of the Milky Way was intersecting with the arc of the bridge, and it looked awesome. And with the time lapses that you can see of mine on Facebook and with Jeff Peterson's image, I haven't processed mine yet. It was beautiful. So we did some tests. We tried some stacking. We tried uh, six or seven images stacking. We tried some other things just to try and get high quality. Tried some panoramas just to build up the quality of the image so it wasn't just a singular image. And I took mine with the 24 millimeter Rokinon and a Tamron 15 to 30, but I'm not sure if in the end I used the 24 millimeter Rokinon, I think I went for the 15 millimeter of the Tamron to capture as much as I could of that big, vast gap of the bridge so that I can see the Milky Way in really awesome form. And so oh, it was beautiful. Now, before I jump into tip of the week and gear time, I want to talk about the lighting situation. Jeff had his own light panel, LCD light panel. I had the LCD Z96. It's recommended by Royce Bear. These two light panels, they worked awesome in tandem on this bridge. It was incredible how little we could cover the bridge. I thought I could turn mine on full blast and shave, you know, light up the entire bridge. But when we did that, it looked terrible. One side was incredibly bright. The other side was really dim. So we dimmed mine almost all the way. I think it was entirely down to full low light. And it only lit the left side of the bridge to the middle, and then Jeff's was tight right next to the bridge. He put it up there right next to the rock so that it had a really sharp light angle. The, harsh, the, the really sharp light angle that was coming in allowed us to have some rocks that were getting shadows and really cool looks. There's a bit of a zebra striping on this bridge from the, I don't know, I guess it's the water that has been making the black marks on it. And that was looking okay, but the way that we light painted it, it took away a lot of that, and it kind of made it more natural looking. I love it more. It looks like a belly of a snake in other people's shots, and I, I mean, that sounds cool too. But in our shot, you see more of the shape of the rock than you are stuck on the pattern of the, of the coloration in it. And so our light painting that Jeff did and mine connected looked really good. It, it was fantastic. I, I can't say fantastic enough. The time lapses that I was able to capture because the light was consistent, low-level lighting, and because those lights never affected our eyesight, we could see the sky. It was so beautiful. There was a woman who came down right in the last 15 minutes that we were there, and she came down the steps and wanted to capture a shot of the Milky Way and the bridge, and boy was she stoked when she saw that we were light painting the bridge for her. We had it all set up, and so she rushed down, threw her tripod, and started taking picture. Click, 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 click she wanted to take advantage of that and when I said I had to go and I'm taking this now she was sad and she's like can I have a few more minutes and we're like absolutely absolutely very cool very cool situation it did not turn out in the house on fire ruins it turns out that that canyon wall just has an outcropping a jut out of rock that's kind of exactly where the core is going to be and that blocks my view of the core and so it wasn't as worth it to wait there as it was to go out find an awesome bridge at natural bridges national monument and wait for that moment 
So what do I want to say for tip of the week in gear time? What I want to talk about for gear time is how I get focused. And when you, what I mean by focus is just making sure that my stars are as crisp as possible. And there are two loops that I use to do that. So first off, let's give you the cheap option that I've been using and the pros and cons. The Carson Lumi Loop. On Amazon, you'll see my link in the show notes. The Carson Lumi Loop is 10 times magnification and it only costs $4.99. If you aren't picturing what this loop looks like, imagine a shot glass standing up with a black bottom where there's a lens. And so there's a single lens. You're looking through that and the the shot glass shape of the loop is basically focusing for you. It's making sure that the lens is the precise distance it needs to be to focus, which is really convenient out there because that's one thing that is a plus for this guy other than the price is the price is great and that it focuses right on your screen. I actually had a Velo screen cover for my 6D. So the back of my 6D had a little bit of a bump with that Velo screen cover on it. So the Velo screen cover was fantastic until I got this loop. Because the Carson Lumi loop has that very specific distance that it's in focus, when I put it flush against my screen cover, that was about two to three millimeters. That thing is two to three millimeters thick and it was pulling my magnifying glass just enough that it's not any help for you to make sure you're in focus when you're looking at that star ball that's in the middle of your LCD screen and you're out of focus yourself. I had to take the Velo screen thing off and put that Carson Lumi loop flush up against the LCD screen that was delivering that image and now that it was flush, I could get it in perfect focus. For five bucks, this tiny little shot glass shape came with me. It's light as ever. And when I get out there and I see that Jupiter's up, and I always choose a planet because the planet is really, really bright and really, really obvious in your LCD screen. Tip of the week is going to cover more about how I do it, but you've all heard it before. So when I got that ball right there in the LCD screen and I use this loop, I can see as I'm focusing, okay, here I go. I turn it this way and it becomes a larger ball. I shrink that ball till it's smallest and I keep turning that focus ring and I can see a change in the color aberration. Do I see a little purple or yellow? What's happening here? And so what I want to make sure I see is that the color aberration goes away and the speck is as tiny as possible. And a singular shape, a small one without a flare off going any direction. It's not oblong. It's as round as I can possibly make it. And the cool thing with the loop is that you're looking at it and you can see the LCD screen's pixels. And so you can kind of see that it's like four or five, six pixels wide right here. And you're watching that as you're turning, you're like, okay, now it's seven pixels wide, turn. Okay, back to four. Four was the smallest I can get it. Boom, get some gaffer's tape, tape that off. So if you guys are thinking the Carson Lumi Loop is incredibly cheap, it's only $5, it's a single lens, it's, it's okay, is there another option? My favorite option, but it's a lot more difficult, but it also works well with a screen protector. If a screen protector or any situation, you can make it work with this next one, the Belomo Triplet Loop. It's a folding loop that allows you to fold it. So one thing about the Carson Lumi Loop I didn't mention that was a con was that it sits there kind of vulnerable. You have scratches in your bag and you don't want sand in your bag causing scratches and you don't want other items in your bag to scratch it. You want to keep it in good shape. I have a telescope eyepiece little container and I've been using that as my, as my little case for my Carson Lumi Loop. So it sits in that, still incredibly light, adds almost no weight to my bag, but it's kind of bulky. A smaller, awesome, more folded in, containing itself and protecting its lens itself is that Belomo triplet folding loop. 
also 10 times, but this one is $32.94 off of Amazon. So you can spend either five bucks or $33. And it, it, yeah, it gets up fast, but the Bolomo is a triplet element. And so it has three elements in there working together to get really high quality glass sharpness and quality, really high quality quality. It has really awesome quality, and the most difficult part about it, but it's also kind of a plus, is that when you're holding your triplet loop, you hold onto the folded top and bottom, and you look through the eyepiece, and now you've actually got to move it to focus it. You need to pull it away from your eye, pull it closer to your eye, kind of rest your eyeball on the glass sometimes in order to see it in focus. And then the object you're looking at needs to be way close too. So I found myself really craning my neck to get down in there to look at my object, but I had control over the focus and I can go in and out and see how it went. But it also meant my focus kind of went in and out depending on how still I was using it. The nice thing with the Carson Lumi Loop is it's got that, it stands on its own plastic and keeps that distance consistently. And so I can just jam it on there and look and be like, okay, yep, that's focused. But the Bolomo Loop protects its glass. It has better glass, better focus. It's smaller. It's actually a little bit heavier, but because it folds on itself, you just throw it in your bag anywhere, and unless sand gets in there and really scratches it up, which it hasn't yet, it is fantastic. I like that I don't have to use my eyepiece cover for it because it protects itself. So in the end, which one would I rather have? For beginners, Carson Lumi Loop, very cheap. You can put that thing right on there. You don't have to fuss with trying to get it in focus. And once it's just resting on there firmly, you can change your focus ring and make sure you're in focus. It's larger, much larger, and it takes up more space in your bag. It's very light and you must protect it. The Belomo Triplet Loop, that thing you can control yourself. It's very small. You work it, you pull it right up to your eye and you work with it and you can use it for using it in this situation. And you can use it in many other situations. Weird rocks, weird shapes. You can look at them up close. Weird plants. You don't have that big bulky plastic shot glass shape that's in your way. If you're going to use it just for astrophotography, Carson Lumi Loop works great. Now, how do you make sure they're in real sharp focus at the best possible way. What is the best possible way? Well, here's the tip of the week. I like to get Jupiter, get a nice bright object, something that's really crazy easy to see and really crazy easy to find early in the night. You don't have to wait until it gets too dark because Jupiter is visible before any other star. So then you get that on there. Venus, Venus is fantastic when it's above the horizon. It's even brighter than Jupiter. You get that in your shot. You get that focus. Now what you want to make sure you do is that you put the center, middle part of your lens on Jupiter. Don't just get it in frame and go, okay, here it is, then I'll zoom in on it, because you could be using the kind of the bending, distorted side of your glass. Just use the center, less distort, least distorted por portion of your lens and make sure that Jupiter is right there. And then when it's in there, use the magnifying glass on your camera and jump in. So you're going to have five, 10 times zoom in that you can do with the LCD screen. So when we're working with Danny. We showed him that for the first time. He's like, oh my gosh, that's, oh, that's the best. He didn't even think about that before. It's one of those things like I didn't know about auto ISO and how I could apply it. He knew about it, but he didn't realize how he could apply it. And here is awesome. Make sure that planet or star is in the center of your glass. You zoom in to 10 times. Then you pull out your loop and you look at that and you've got this really big ball. And now that that really big ball is in your, is in focus and you've gotten that ring tweaked back and forth, you're really going to fine tune that, make sure that that focus is perfect. Boom. Now you're ready to go. Now that your lens is ready to be focused to infinity, your stars are going to be awesome. Just make sure that your shutter isn't going to have star trailing. Otherwise, all that work is going to be a little blurry anyway. 
So there it is. I tried it. I think I'll keep doing that, the pre-trip expectation and how it went in the post so I can talk about all of these cool things. This is a longer Astrophotog episode. I, I thought I was going to try and keep these ones short, but it's just too much fun to talk about. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And hey, let me know how it goes. If you guys have any cool astrophotography shots, let us know on the Facebook page or just messages directly on the website. Thanks, guys, for listening, and I hope you guys have a good week, and I'll talk to you next week.